The title of the sermon today is Finding Time for Patience. How did practicing patience go on your way to church this morning trying to navigate through this marathon traffic? See, God knew we needed to hear this sermon today. I was driving behind someone, and let me tell you, they were laying on the horn a lot. It seemed like they were very eager to get to church. I was very proud of them. So. <laughs> Well, we're in the second to last uh, sermon in the book of James. And right off the bat, I want to acknowledge that James gives us some very strange counsel in these verses, and particularly in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Now, when you hear that, perhaps you don't come from a Christian background, or maybe even if you do, when you hear about the coming of the Lord, that can feel a little off-putting. Like these are words from a street corner evangelist that you're trying to avoid. Does the coming of the Lord really seem relevant to us in our modern day? Or perhaps there's another issue with this, and that is what he says in verse 9. He says, the judge is standing at the door. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was on earth. It doesn't seem like the judge is standing at the door at all. Is this just another failed doomsday prediction from a religious figure? Because we live so long after these words, it can be easy to dismiss what James is saying here. But I want to suggest that there's really another reason that it's hard for us to feel the weight and urgency of what James is trying to teach us. James writes to people who are down and out. They are poor Jewish Christians, blue-collar workers who work in the fields. Their hands are stained with dirt, which communicates they're at the bottom rung of society. Not only that, they're far from home. They've been displaced from their home in Jerusalem, and they don't make enough money to make ends meet. These believers are poor. They are persecuted, and day in and day out, that is their plight. They have no voice. And in verses 1 through 6, James raises their complaints against the ones who oppress them. And this is not the scenario most of us find ourselves in today. Where you live and where you work, Christianity may not be popular, but we are not persecuted like this. But throughout the world, many Christians do find themselves in exactly the same struggle as these early Christians. They live in societies where not only is government dysfunctional, the government actively works to discriminate against them. They have no opportunity for upward mobility, their rights are restricted, and their resources are so limited. On a gut level, they know that their only real hope in this world will be when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, and he will reign with truth and justice forever. That's what they know to be their only hope. And the question is, do we know that to be true as well? You see, if you have wealth, if you have education, if you have access to health care, you have the opportunity to get a better job, you have disposable income like many of us do, you can meet most of the needs that you have through the push of a button. It's easy to lose sight of what the global church has a clear vision of, which is the return of Jesus Christ 
and his ability to make all things new. No matter how good we can make our lives here on earth, we cannot for a moment forget that this is not heaven. And if we are honest, instead of the return of Christ, too often what we really hope for is the return of a bigger and better version of the American dream. Now hear me out. Creating a comfortable life through hard work is not a sin. Providing as best as you can for your household is a good thing. But the problem arises when getting stuff and getting and, and, and achievements become the very aim of our lives. Rather than seeing the stuff and achievements of our lives as opportunities to serve the living Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you have little in this world, like the believers James writes to, like so many Christians around the world, comfort and abundance in this life doesn't cast a mirage that lulls them to sleep spiritually. And each day they groan for the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring. And that's what James wants us to long for too, is his return. Now before we look at two places where James wants us to learn patience, let me give you a snapshot of what the New Testament says about the coming of Jesus. Without holding these things together, we're going to have a distorted view about Christ's return. Here's the first thing. Ever since Jesus was raised from the dead, until the time he returns, according to the New Testament, we are at the end of the age. So when James says that the return of the Lord is at hand, he is right to say that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ commences the end of the age. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. No one knows when Christ will return. It will happen like a thief in the night, the scriptures say. And because that's the case, because no one knows when that will be, Paul, Peter, James, and even Jesus himself teach the church teach the church, excuse me, to always be ready. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7. This is typical. The end of all things is at hand. So what should we do? Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another with earnest, since love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the third thing. We must remember that God's time is not our time. Remember, it took over 400 years before Israel was liberated from Egypt. It took 42 generations for the Lord Jesus to be born as the Messiah of Israel. Peter says, a thousand years to us is but a day to God. God's sense of time is not ours. But that does not mean that he is late. His timing is always perfect. So with these three things in mind, let's now look at how James wants us to learn patience from two places. Here's the first place. He wants us to learn patience from planting. He wants us to learn patience from planting. That's what we see in verses 7 to 9. Look at what he says, especially at that second part of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. 
What James teaches these poor uh, field workers is really amazing. Uh, Have you ever had uh, a task at your work that made you feel like, man, I really don't get paid enough to do this? Ever have that experience? Well, as I said before, these Christians were not being paid very fairly. They were taken advantage of at work, but rather than their work being a source of disappointment, it is actually a picture of the sure hope that is theirs when Jesus returns. You see, a farmer labors long hours and puts in very, very hard days. He gets up before the sun rises and goes to bed after the sun sets, but then he has to wait He has to wait for the rainy seasons. And why does he do all this? Because he knows it's the only way to reap a harvest. So James is saying to these believers, every time you pull a crop from the ground or a fruit from the tree, you are holding a sign that God's deliverance will come. It's not a source of your discouragement, it's a foretaste of your deliverance. A father must wait, a a farmer must wait, yes, but the farmer never waits in vain, and neither do you. What James wants us to see is this. The fact that Jesus will return sheds new light on how we are to interpret the good and bad we experience in our lives. If in this season we are experiencing good, we can see that as a generous gift from God. But if this is a long, difficult, and hard season for you, the hurts in your life have been going on and you've been praying about these hurts for many, many years, they are unresolved, there are frustrations you keep experiencing, you keep being let down, then know this, the best is yet to come. That's what James wants us to see. But you have to be patient. Three times James says that in these verses. To be patient like a farmer is to remain calm, not to be anxious, not to be troubled, but to be confident and hopeful that the work will be rewarded. Now I know that when some of you hear these words, uh, be patient, Remain calm, be confident. What you're hearing is this, do nothing. Wait around, hold on, just give up. Some of you will go home, you'll actually say that the sermon today was about doing nothing. That's what you hear when you hear about, when you hear about patience. Now how do I know that's what people hear? When James says, be patient, because I'm one of those people. It's very hard to be patient. But what James shows us is that patience is not passive. Remember, one of the major themes in the book of James is to be a doer of the word of God, not just a hearer. To be patient, according to James, is to work while you wait. It's to put your nose to the grindstone Not looking up each day for a reward, but knowing that the reward will come in God's time. It's a reminder to remember Abraham, that through his work, through his patience, he received back his son Isaac. It's a reminder to be like Rahab, 
whose life was saved from destruction because of her patience. That's the, those are the examples that James uses in chapter 2. So what's the work we're supposed to be doing while we're to be patient? James says this in verse 8. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Meaning, don't waver in your faith. Stand firm in what you believe. No matter what happens today, wake up tomorrow and be resolute to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Then interestingly, he says this in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. Isn't it easy when you're waiting for the resolution of a problem to grumble, to complain? I found a funny video the other day of what uh, people say while they're on the other line waiting. They were recording what people were saying, thinking that they were just on hold. Let me tell you what people say, it's not good. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even say what they say, it's so bad. Venting our negative feelings about others is one act that actually breaks the two greatest commandments at once. You see, to grumble is to say to God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't, you don't know how to arrange this world. You don't know how to arrange my life. To complain about others is not to love them but to assassinate their character. You see how in just a few grumbling words, you can break the most important commands. And grumbling in a church, what that does is it breaks up its unity. The unity that Jesus Christ died to achieve and to bring together. That's how powerful grumbling is. So why do we grumble as Christians? I think one of the reasons is because we don't always see the fruit of our obedience to God. One of the things I wish I knew up front when I started to follow Jesus is that you will not experience the full fruit of your obedience to Jesus in this life. You may not see it at all. And I remember a time when I really saw this come together in a remarkable way. How all the sacrifice you can make in life, you don't necessarily see the payoff in your lifetime. Some years ago, I attended a funeral of an elderly woman who, who lived a very simple life. She grew up in rural Argentina, and for a long time, she was uh, living under the oppressive military regime. And she only had a sixth grade education. She spent much of her life doing ordinary work of raising her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I don't even think she had much of a resume to speak of. I don't even know if she ever had to put one together in her life. Her life was pretty unremarkable and routine by all accounts. But at her funeral, her children, her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren all stood up and gave testimony about her steady faith and love is what inspired them to follow Jesus Christ. Three generations. In that one funeral service, three generations of gospel influence 
all came together. And it grew from one simple life of faith. And only after her death did we see the true effect of her faith. Now here's the amazing thing. She has not yet received her best reward. Because as as satisfying as that is, as wonderful it is to be with the Lord, the fullness of the reward will only come when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, when he comes in his glory. You see, we may never get to see the fruits of our patience. But that is no reason to grumble. Our faith may be unrecognized for a really long time, but it will never go unrewarded. Now, how are we to keep this mindset throughout our lives? How do we keep the momentum going in our faith? We need examples. That's the only way to learn how to do anything difficult that is worthwhile. We need models, we need examples, we need mentors. All of us, no matter what we do for a living, have benefited from examples and mentors to show us how to do our work. And that's what James offers us next. So first, James wants us to learn patience from planting. Now he says we want to learn patience from the living example of the prophets. That's what we see in verses 10 through 12. Now again, James's example here, right, shows that he really knows his audience. You remember that James is writing to believers, to Jewish Christians who are in the diaspora. These are Jewish Christians who were exiled from Jerusalem. They were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. They lived with people, their neighbors, Uh, thought their ideas about God, about morality, about the world, were weird, if not dangerous. The surrounding culture didn't particularly care for what they believed or what they valued. Jews were a minority in the Roman Empire. Jewish Christians were a minority within the minority. Society was not hospitable to them at all. Like these Jewish Christians, The prophets in the Bible, we could say, were a minority group in a couple of important ways. First, prophets like Joel and Amos and Hosea, maybe you've heard of some of these. They were a minority among God's own people. At the time of these prophets, God's people were behaving very badly. They abandoned the God of Israel and they worshiped other gods because they thought these other gods would make them more powerful and successful. And God called these early prophets to testify against Israel, to tell them to turn back from their ways. And you could imagine how that went, right? God's people didn't like that. That was out of line with the party line. So these prophets were ridiculed, they were persecuted, they suffered, some of them were martyred, but they did not cave. And the later prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they actually lived under the oppression of Babylon. And what that meant was that these prophets had to learn how to be faithful to God in a society that put a a major amount of pressure on them to conform, to change their beliefs, to act differently, And these prophets didn't bend the knee either. And it cost them everything too. 
as time goes on, if you hold on to the historic Christian faith, you may find that you have less in common with other Christians that confuse their political beliefs or holding of cultural trends with actual belief in the gospel. Or maybe in a post-Christian culture, it's harder to hold on to your Christian identity in public. James reminds us that the prophets are to be our example, whatever comes our way. Like them, we can live with integrity, we can keep our word, our yes can be yes, and our no's can be no. Day in and day out, we were constant and we are faithful, no matter if we are pressured by church culture or the surrounding culture. That's what the prophets teach us. Now, interestingly, of all the prophets that James mentions that we should be learning from, he picks the unique story of Job to be an example for all of us. You'll remember, Job was a righteous person before God and others. Job's life was marked by abundance. He was married, he had a lot of servants, he had 10 children, he had a total of 10,000 sheep and camels, a total of 1,000 oxen and donkeys. He had a lot of zeros in his portfolio, that's for sure. But in a quick series of unfortunate events, Job loses everything all his animals, and most tragically, all his children. Abundant suffering like you have never seen. And yet, his faith in God remained at resolute. All that remained with him was his health and his wife. And in the very next breath, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, gruesome sores grow all over his body. There went his health. And in response to this, his wife says to him, curse God and die. Job lost everything, all his children, his health, and now even his wife was against him. And this forced him to figure out what exactly to do with the only thing he had left in life. And that was God. But here's the problem. God is the one who allowed all these terrible things to happen to him. And here is what the author tells us about Job's response to all of this. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In response to his abundant suffering, Job responds with what? Abundant faith. And these Jewish believers, they had the same choice to make as Job did in the face of great suffering that comes from the mighty hand of God. You see, it's been said that the problem of suffering is both the greatest obstacle and at the same time, the greatest motivator for deep faith. So what will they do with God? What will you do when you face the darkest days of your life at home, at work, at school, with your health, in church? What will you do? Job remained patient under trial, 
and the Lord blessed him for it. And for the rest of history, Job's faith remains an example to us. But again, we see this, that patience is not passive. Though Job does not sin with his lips against God, it's not as if he keeps his lips closed. Because in patient faith, he what? He protests to God. He doesn't abandon the faith. He appeals to God. He pleads with God on the basis of God's holy character. Like for many of us, Job never learns the why of his suffering. But that doesn't stop him from being determined on how he was going to proceed through it and what he was going to do. Job 13, 15 says this, Though he slay me, speaking of God, I will hope in him. How could he say that? How can anyone say that? Because Job knows, however difficult the troubles of life are, no matter what evil exists in the world, there is one word that will endure about God's ways through all of eternity, and that one word is good. And Job gets to see God's goodness firsthand. Because at the end of Job, God responds to Job's abundant faith with even more abundant blessing. The mercies and compassions of God are just brimming over for him. He has ten children, which means his family line will continue again, which is very good news in the Old Testament. And God gives him back twice as much as he lost, and he is blessed with a very long life. Now, I said earlier that Job is a unique prophet. Can't you see that? For all the stuff that happened to him, for how he's rewarded in the end. But Job is a timeless prophet. And here's what I mean. The end of Job, those rewards he receives at the end, is actually a picture of the last judgment of when Jesus will return. That's the time in which God will make everything right again. That was the time when, uh, at the end of Job, Job, uh, God silences Job's friends who were really acting like enemies. The last judgment is ultimately where we will find our reward in the face of great trial. You see, the story of Job reminds us that every believer who is faithful to God will be judged righteous by God in the end. And on what basis does he have this hope? How can we know that? Well, in Job 19, Job's faith is on trial before heaven, before his friends, before his family, and yet he believes that God himself will provide a redeemer who will plead his case. And this redeemer will not only acquit Job of all wrongdoing, but he will make it so that Job will have face-to-face fellowship with God. God himself will be his redeemer. God will vindicate him. That's what God will do. And Jesus Christ is redeemer that Job longed to see. As fallen sinful beings, we have no case to make before God's judgment. Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus Christ 
becomes our advocate before God. He takes upon himself our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He is condemned, and we are acquitted before God's law court. But his case for us doesn't end there. We are rewarded for Jesus' obedience. His faith in God becomes ours. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that it's only because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that we are saved when we believe in his name. So now in Jesus Christ, we become the very righteousness of God. We aren't just acquitted of all charges. We receive the full reward of Jesus' obedience as if it were our own. We will see what the full reward of Christ's righteousness will bring us when he comes to judge the living and the dead. So in a very real way, Job and all the saints have not yet received their full reward because they are waiting for us to complete the race. The best is still yet to come. You know, our culture teaches that the way out of suffering is to avoid it or to outachieve it. But from Job, we learn that blessedness consists not in the great things that we do, but in the great things that we endure. Do you too know, do you know that your only hope is that your Redeemer lives? Is that what you put your trust in? I want to ask you, where in your life do you need to find time to learn patience? Are there hardships at home? Are there difficulties in the workplace? Are there frustrations with other Christians? Is there rejection because of your faith? Are there disappointments from failures and mistakes? All these things are in our life to remind us that ultimately, It is when Jesus Christ will return that all our patience will be rewarded and that his reward will be far greater than any of the suffering that we can endure. Jesus stands at the door and his reward is with him as surely as he is raised from the dead. And may this be our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, it is so easy to bristle and grumble under trial. It's so easy to want to leave and abandon your ways when so many others around us have. And it seems that you have put us not on the path of life, but on the path of great difficulty, even death itself. But Lord, we, like Job, believe and trust that our Redeemer lives, that Jesus Christ is triumphant, and that his reward is with him. And so, like many things in life, Lord, we can endure disturbance and frustration. We can hold on because we know what is ahead. 
So Lord, I pray for each person here, for my brothers and sisters, that whatever news that they are enduring, whatever difficulties they are enduring, that you would renew in their hearts the hope that is found in the Redeemer who lives. And for those who don't yet know you, may you use the troubles in their life to bring them to the only sure hope that they can find. Nothing that is found in this world, no achievement of a dream, no positive health diagnosis, all those things, though good, will fail, and only the hope found in the Lord Jesus Christ will last. Lord God, work these things in our hearts, we pray. Amen.